Thank you so much, Daniel and Jeffrey. Aren't you glad we didn't put that one away too soon, huh? Let's pray together, shall we? Father, what a joy is ours to gather in the name of our wonderful Lord Jesus as we have been um, seeking to plumb some of the depths of the wonder of the incarnation. Today, would you speak to us at a practical level? Uh, Speak to us as to how we live for Jesus today because of his birth that our lives are to be transformed. I thank you for the opportunity we have to open our Bibles once again on the first day of the week like this. Use this time well, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, not only are we wrapping up Christmas today, but we're wrapping up another year. That's hard to get your mind wrapped around that. Uh, 2019 is almost in the books. And I was just thinking about all of the people who make the ministries around here go all year long, and I wanted to just express my appreciation, and I wanted to uh, just kind of get a sense. Uh, So I know that many people do many things that no one even knows about, but if you are a part of a regularly scheduled ministry, that is that you have a job to do, you usher, you help with parking, you're in nursery, you teach, of some level, you're involved in a ministry, music, whatever it is, where you are on a schedule and you have to be there all year long. Raise your hand if you're part of a regularly scheduled ministry around here. Just hold your hand up so I can see a little bit. Many, many people in every service that help the wheels turn here for for the gospel. As your pastor, I just want to say thank you for your faithfulness. I am so thankful for all the stories that I hear of all the different ways that people minister to the body of Christ here. Um, But I am especially here as we wrap up this year and so thankful for you who are faithful to your ministries. And uh, may the Lord bless you for it. It also, though, sets the tone for what I would like us to to think about this morning as I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. I want us to focus on this concept that God uses people. God uses people. We just saw many, many hands in all three of the services raised of people who are faithful in their ministries, and God uses you to, in an organized, structured way on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, throughout the week, accomplish his purposes here. And then even if you're not part of that structured world, you do ministry. God still uses you. He uses people. This is always so real to me when I'm here studying alone on Saturday morning. I've referenced this different times not long ago, but on Saturday mornings, it's very quiet here, generally speaking, and I'll be studying in my office, finishing or getting ready for Sunday mornings, and I'll take a stretch break and walk down the hall, and it's really quiet. There's no boys and girls in the classrooms, no babies in the nurseries. The foyer is silent. I open these back doors, and I'll step inside and just turn on one of the outside lights. Sometimes I'll just sit here in the auditorium and think and pray. And you know what I always think is that When God has the place to himself, almost nothing happens. When God has this place to himself, not much goes on. You ever think about that? It's when the people begin to come. It's when people interface with the gospel. It's when people take the word of God and get engaged and get involved that God begins to do a work and build his church. 
This morning, I have on my heart a message particularly for young people in the audience. I knew that many of you would be home from uh, parts around the country, from colleges, from military. Uh, Others of you are here regularly, and you do so well, young people listening to the sermons and and interacting with me. I'm amazed sometimes at children in high school and junior high kids who react so well to the preaching of God's Word. But you're who I have in mind. Young people today, I especially want this final message of Christmas. Um, I want you to listen closely, if you will. Now, you oldsters, you don't get the day off because everything I'm going to say to the young people applies to you as well. But I think that the sermon today I just have on my heart is especially appropriate for young people. So if you would uh, have ears to hear today, young people, it's Matthew chapter one, and we're going to use Joseph as a model for a a servant of the Lord. You see, here's where I'm going, young people. Are you the kind of young person that says you want to live for Christ? You want Christ to use your life. Many of you have most of your life ahead of you, and you would say that I really want to live for Christ. Well, today I want, before we pack up the Christmas story for another year, I want us to look at this man, Joseph, couched in the Christmas story with significant obscurity. We really don't know a lot about Joseph, but what we do speaks volumes for us today, and he provides for us a model and gives us spiritual lessons for people who want to live for Christ. They want their lives to count for Christ. And you young people, I think we can learn some things from Joseph here today. Let's read this account. We have already read this this Christmas season. Our text today is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And it's Matthew's account, particularly from the vantage point of Joseph receiving the news uh, that his wife, Mary, his wife-to-be, to whom he's betrothed, is now with child. I'm going to read it, but I'm going to interrupt myself as I read and make explanation of a few things, most of which many of you probably already know. On the other hand, I think it will help us understand a little bit better exactly why it's written the way it is. Let's read God's word together. Matthew chapter 1, begin with verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Let's just stop and just amplify a couple things that are happening here. First of all, you need to recognize that that this betrothal, this idea of a faithful, loyal Pledge, that's what troth means. To be betrothed means you've made a, a, a vow of fidelity and faithfulness to someone. This is not really to be thought of like our engagement period. This was an absolutely done deal. It was essentially irrevocable. Joseph and his family had met and on terms of agreement, met with Mary's father and family. They had paid some kind of a dowry in this culture and in this society. An agreement was made, and it was in writing, and it was contractual, and it was settled. Joseph and Mary would be husband and wife. Now, 
It is interesting in the passage, and the reason I emphasize this is because it says her husband, Joseph, but yet they had not come together physically to consummate the marriage. So they had not actually had the wedding ceremony of celebration with the honeymoon to follow, and they're going together to their room and being together as husband and wife in physical proximity. So they had this legal agreement. It was a done deal. They were no longer looking at other people. It was settled. But in this culture, there was this, this time of waiting. It was, it was in part, at least, to prove the fidelity of the relationship, but to prove that they had not been together physically. And here it is, Joseph betrothed to this girl, Mary, Joseph probably a little bit older, Mary probably a little bit younger. This betrothal was significant to the degree that he was called her husband, she his wife. And then he says, when he finds out that she's pregnant, I have to divorce her. Now, there were two things that he could do here. He could have some kind of a public hearing where he would meet with the religious leaders Uh, those who were involved in the arrangement to begin with and the contractual part of the marriage, confirming it, that this was done, this was approved, this was what was going to happen. And he could, in essence, make a public hearing out of it so that, and the advantage of this to Joseph would be that, in essence, there had been an injustice to him. I mean, of all the people there, Joseph knows one thing for sure. He would say, it wasn't me. He knows he had not been with Mary, all right? And so you know how it is when you've had an injustice or you are slighted or there is some kind of a taint to your reputation. You love the opportunity to publicly proclaim to everybody it was her, it wasn't me. So he could have cleared his name. The best way to clear his name publicly would have been to have had this more formal, open public agreement. It says because he was a just man, you have to feel that implied in that he cared about this girl. He cared about her feelings. He cared about what would happen to her publicly. Now at this time, even though according to Mosaic law, a girl in this situation could have been brought under and condemned with the death penalty by now, Levitical law had morphed enough that, and and there's not much evidence that that ever happened By the time of our Lord's public ministry and when Mary was found to be with child outside of the marriage arrangement and propriety in this sense, she probably would not have been stoned. They just didn't do that. They didn't make a practice of that to use the death penalty in this situation. So Joseph would have known that, but when he did not want to make a public example of her, it meant that he cared about her feelings. And so the other thing he would have done then is on a more private basis, kind of in a sense, filled out the paperwork and just the whole thing would have just gone away and it was over and he walked away and people could think whatever they wanted to think and there wasn't much he could do about it. So there it is. That's why he's called husband. That's why the word divorce is used in the text. Let's consider reading verse 20. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you, will call, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, Isaiah seven fourteen, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So... As we finish reading the text, the other thing you have to think here is that as he considered these things, verse 20, this angel of the Lord appeared to him. You notice that in Matthew 1, there's no name given to the angel. In Luke chapter 2, it was the angel Gabriel that came and spoke to Mary. You also have in the wording here, you have the idea that he was thinking of these things. He was giving contemplation and consideration as to what his options are before the angel came and told him that she was with child with the Holy Spirit. The idea would be that evidently it's possible. We don't know, so we're not going to speculate too long. But was it Mary herself that would have come to Joseph and spoken to him, and would have said, Joseph, you need to know that I'm pregnant. You need to know this. And it's of the Holy Spirit. You also get implied in the passage that when he hears this, it might not be for the first time because he immediately accepts it. There's no questioning. It's like it's something that he's been hearing and he was thinking about. And when Mary looked at him, or Mary's father, was it Mary's father who came? Joseph, you need to understand things have changed. She's pregnant, but an angel named Gabriel came and told us it's of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph said, oh, yeah, right. You have to believe that Joseph at this point before he had additional revelation had essentially no ability to get his head wrapped around the reality that this was the Holy Spirit, this was Emmanuel, this was God in the flesh, this was the second member of the Godhead putting on flesh. This was in his mind and perhaps it was further cause for his contemplation because he would have known Mary. Now this was an arranged marriage, they did not date They probably had hardly spoken to one another, but let's not kid ourselves. Men are men and women are women, and it's always that way forever and ever. In Proverbs, it says that one of the wonders of the world is the way of a man with a maiden. Don't tell me they didn't have their little eye contact and their little wave and signal and maybe pass some notes. I don't know. I'm just speculating. But certainly he knew her well enough to understand who it was he was betrothed to and going to marry. Maybe he had watched her grow up. And maybe part of his contemplation was, I just, I just can't get in my mind that, that Mary would have been in this situation. Because he knows for sure it wasn't him. And the only other way this could happen is if she had been immoral. And I think he couldn't get that. So he's wondering What is going on here? And maybe he's already heard that this is of the Holy Spirit. And then 
in this state of mind and struggle, emotionally, he falls asleep, perhaps, it doesn't tell us, perhaps into a restless sleep, and then he has a dream, and in this dream, the angel speaks to him, this no-name angel, this angel of the Lord, speaks to him and says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He goes on to explain who this baby will be, and he being raised up in Israel of old and under the law and under the Old Testament prophets would have known that the angel was quoting Isaiah 7, and he would have had some level of understanding, and we don't know too, did the Holy Spirit begin to do a work enlightening him, helping him accept this, helping have immediate understanding of this, and there he is. What a remarkable time in his life this was. And so he does exactly what God tells him to do. You know, you stop and think about it. We don't know much about Joseph at all. We have such a limited account here. The Holy Spirit, inspired by God through the Holy Spirit of men writing. Matthew gave us just a few tidbits of information. We do know that Joseph has a couple more dreams. He's going to get a dream and an angel is going to tell him to go to Egypt and he's going to have another dream and they're going to tell him to come back home. We don't know very much about him. When Jesus is 12 years of age and he goes to the temple, we have a little bit more. We know that he got upset a little bit or they were worried about Jesus disappearing on them in the crowds. They didn't know where their 12-year-old boy was. And after that, it's silent. We don't know anything about Joseph. Very little. Most, if not many, Bible students believe that Joseph probably passed away at a younger age. It's possible that he was older, more mature than Mary, so there was an age gap of 10, 12, even 15 years could have been. Somewhere along the line, did he get sick and he passed away? There seems to be no evidence in the public earthly ministry of our Lord that Joseph is present. They had more children, we know that. So what do we know about Joseph? We know that he provides a tremendous model for us young people as a servant of the Lord. And so let's use him now and let's go to the notes and and let's just remind ourselves of our opening statement. God works through people. What kind of people... Through whom does he work? What kind of people? If I'm a young person, am I the kind of young person that is saying, I want to be this kind of person. I want to be available. I want to be usable. I want to be whatever God wants me to be. Let's look at Joseph as a model here. First of all, I want you to see if you're this kind of person, the servant of God must be prepared. The servant of God must be prepared. How was it that Joseph was prepared to be used of God in this special way? How was it that Joseph was prepared to be used of God in this special way? Well, first of all, I want you to see, and we, we get it from the gist of the story, not the particulars in writing, but from the gist of the story, we recognize that he was prepared by his moral purity, by his moral purity. Clearly, Joseph is upset that something has gone on that she's pregnant. He knows it isn't him, and because he's a just man, and we also know from the story in Luke chapter 2 that she's a virgin, a pure maiden, 
who had never been with a man, there was in Mary and Joseph, wasn't there? There was a moral purity that provided a usability. You have to believe that if they had compromised in the area of moral purity, God would not be able to use them at this level. Let's talk about this for a minute. I would like to suggest that there's been hardly a greater tool from the devil than than influencing the culture around us to the degree that it has seeped into the church, that moral impropriety and sexual immorality among our young people is, is creating a guilt. It is creating circumstances in our lives that we may be starting out at one point with a desire to be whatever and whomever God wanted me to be, but because of sexual immorality, I end up some other place than where I ought to be, and God is not able maybe to use me the way that he could have. It says clearly in the text that it was before they came together that all of this happened. Joseph was a man of self-control. He was a man who was waiting for marriage. He had the first part of his contract done. Now there was this time to make sure that there had been fidelity in the marriage physically and that nothing had gone on and that she was not pregnant before the wedding. And then they would have the wedding ceremony, the wedding feast, and the honeymoon in essence. One of the things that we need to understand about this is that this wasn't like a normal engagement in the United States. And and in fact, that's an area that has sort of been hijacked, it seems, by the world. And I wonder if it's even influencing the church and our young people in the church when we say, well, I'm engaged. This is my fiance. That word has morphed into new definition. And then when you're out and about and somebody introduces to you my fiance, you almost always know, well, this is who I'm living with. This is my fiance. It's who I'm living with. It's not your wife. Why are you living with her? At least Christian young people ought to know better than that, shouldn't they? First Thessalonians chapter 4 Verses 3 through 5, you don't have to turn there, but you could look that up later. Young people especially notice those verses, but it says it clearly as can be. It says, it is God's will. That's what it says. I know that there is often a fog about God's will for our lives. Now, what do I, I don't know whether to buy a Ford truck or a Chevy truck. That's not hard. That's not a good example. Buy the Ford. Okay, so he's like, what is it? What is God's will? And you have like this fog of God's will for your life. Young people feel this. What am I going to do? What am I going to be? What am I going to become? All right, I understand that. And the Bible doesn't have all the answers about like exactly which school to go to. You have to make those decisions based on principle. But when the Bible does speak pointedly in at least three or four places in the New Testament, all of them verses that are so appropriate to young people, it will say this, it is God's will. It is God's will that you be, in the next word is sanctified, set apart from sin, and that you learn to control your bodies, not in passionate lust like the heathen. Okay, so let's just make clear. If you're a Christian young people, for Christian young people and for any young person, and you're a man and you're attracted to your girlfriend, your girlfriend's attracted to you, that is designed by God. That's a good thing, not a bad thing, all right? But God has put up fences in our lives, 
And God has put timetables on us. And we don't just have free reign. We don't just get to do whatever we want. And it's amazing. Isn't it interesting that in the Old Testament, whether under law or in other places and in the wisdom literature and in the historical accounts of the lives of people and in the New Testament and the instruction of the epistles, God puts a premium on sexual fidelity and moral fidelity. God cares about this area of our lives. Go figure. Isn't that interesting? But part of our problem is we live in a culture now that has torn down barriers and that has made it acceptable for young people to engage physically before marriage and nothing ever happens, nobody says anything, but I'm telling you that's not God's plan and you're damaging your relationship if you've gotten involved physically before and outside of marriage. Same thing goes for all old students who are married. You, you can't go have sex with anybody you want to. God cares about moral purity and we see in Joseph a man who maintained a, a moral fidelity sexually. Uh, let's, let's just acknowledge that this is not an easy area. And if you've crossed lines and you've crawled over, around, or through God's fences, in fact, you might have done that and you might even be tangled up in barbed wire right now and getting into things you don't even want to be a part of. And here you are, My counsel today is, listen, God loves you. He cares for you. Run to the cross. Shower in the blood of Christ. And know this, that the will of God for your life starts brand new right now. The will of God for your life starts brand new right now. That's what the blood of Christ does. It cleanses us. It's not, it's not this little like, um, like little hand soap we carry around so that we can go ahead and put our hands in dirty places and then clean them and get... No, but it's a new beginning. It's a new start. God can forgive. God will forgive. God can start over. And then you say to me, you say, but Pastor Van, you, you don't understand. Um, excuse me? Tell me what I don't understand. You say, well, you're a pastor. You have gray hair. You're old. Trust me. I understand everything. I understand it all. I haven't experienced it all, but I understand it all. And I understand how men work, and I understand how women work, and I understand how this whole thing shakes down. I understand. Trust me, I understand. All right? What I say to you is, you got a want-to problem. When you look at me and you say, you don't understand, I say, no, you don't understand you got to change your want to, and you got to say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I'm not saying it's going to be easy to look at somebody and say, you know what? We can no longer meet like this. Do you know what? The only time we can be together is when we're with people and there's bright lights. That's it. I'm telling you. This is a good thing to want to be together, people. Do not misunderstand my message. One of the most beautiful things that God ever gave is the ability for a man and a woman to come together physically. But he has a timetable, and he has a plan. And if you're violating all of that, you are setting yourself up to be in a position where you're going to say, Lord, I don't know if you want to use me or not, but 
I'm telling you, the detours are significant, and sexual immorality is a huge detour among young people, even in the church. And when you look at Joseph, you don't see a guy who made excuses. You don't see a guy who compromised. You see a guy who his testimony of his life is that he was a righteous man. And he was a self-controlled man, and therefore God was able to use him. And so do not also, do not construe what I'm saying to say that God can't use you if you've crossed that fence. I'm saying you got to get back in the corral. You make it happen. You can do it. It's not going to be easy. Well, we've even been living together. We'll move apart or get married. It's just not that hard to figure out. It's a want-to issue. It's a want-to issue. So there we go. I guess I kind of camped on that one a little bit. But um, I think that when we look at Joseph's preparation, one way that he was a prepared servant of the Lord is that he maintained a sexual purity. Secondly, I want you to see that he maintained his spiritual integrity. He had a spiritual integrity. We learned this just from this word just. The ESV says he was a just man. Your Bible might say he was a righteous man instead of the word just. He was a righteous man. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, I quoted him last week. I really like this guy a lot. He said that in Joseph, this word just or righteous means it is one who with his whole heart wanted to live in accordance with the will of God. I thought that was a good sentence. A right, Joseph as a righteous man or the definition of a righteous man is one who with his whole heart wants to serve or live in accordance with the will of God. With your whole heart, the psalmist David said in one of his prayers, he said, give me an undivided heart. That's part of our problem, isn't it? We kind of want everything the world has in Jesus too. And somehow it's all just going to work out. David said, Lord, give me an undivided heart that I may serve your name and fear your name. And so Joseph maintained a righteousness. I want you to note that he was not righteous so that God would use him, but rather God used him because he was righteous. Did you see the difference there? Now, I don't think it's wrong at all to say to the Lord, Lord, I want to be a righteous man so that you can use me. I think that's a righteous woman. I want you to use me. I want to maintain... uh, and, and we're going to fight the good fight, and I want to walk in righteousness so that you can use me, Lord. That is not wrong or bad. But I just wanted to point out that I think in the nuance of Joseph's life, the reality was God used him because he was righteous. He wasn't righteous so that God would use him, and I think there's a little difference in the way you think about that. Live out your life, and then wait and see what God does. Thirdly, What I see in this story, too, in the opening remarks and and the opening dynamics of this story is that when Joseph finds out that she's pregnant, and, and like I said, it's definitely implied in the passage that he knew it before the angel told him. Somebody got the news to him. You also see in Joseph an emotional stability, an emotional stability. And I think that the stabilizing factor in the midst of totally unexpected chaos in Joseph's life was his spiritual integrity, which in turn kept him emotionally in check. There is no inference whatsoever that he began to kick and scream, that he went out and got drunk, or that he went out and said, well, she did it, so I'm going to do it. There was no retaliation. There was no kick in his mule. He was just 
Wow. Considering all of these things in his heart, he was a stable man characterized by an emotional stability that I believe was built upon his spiritual integrity. He loved God. He believed God. The word of God ministered in his life. And I know that God then spoke almost immediately to him so that he had more information. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32 says that he who rules his emotions, who rules his anger, is mightier than one who rules a city. A person who doesn't rule their emotions or their anger is like a city whose walls are broken down, it says. You're vulnerable. It always concerns me when I see believers in Christ go into emotional meltdown when life gets difficult. I'm not saying we're not emotional people and we're not hardwired to be emotional but I think that emotional meltdown is often a tell of the lack of spiritual integrity in our lives. Let me say that again. For me to go into a tailspin emotionally and to go into emotional chaos is often a tell in my life of a lack of spiritual maturity. I am not in any, do not read into what I'm saying here. I know that we deal with very difficult things and that we are emotional beings and that God made our emotions but I'm saying that our spiritual and our emotional stability needs to be built on our spiritual integrity. And I think we have a prepared servant of God here in Joseph because number one, of his moral purity, number two, his spiritual integrity, and number three, his emotional stability. This is the kind of guy God can use. Secondly, I want you to see that the will of God is not to be feared. I think often young people, I used to have a lesson that I taught when I was a youth pastor about the will of God and how do you know the will of God. And, and I was given a call. Part of my lesson would be to give a call. I was speaking at a camp or sometimes to my own youth group. But I would be give a call for young people to commit their life to Christ. I want you to commit to Christ at a level where you're saying to God, you can do whatever you want with my life. And you say, wait, wait a minute. Because if, if I do that, you know what's going to happen. If I commit my life to Christ and I give God a blank check on my life, first of all, he's going to move me somewhere awful. And I'm going to have to make no money and marry someone ugly. That's what's going to happen. God will ruin my life. I mean, look at all these missionaries. That's what happens. You marry someone like Tommy Jesserin. It's like, oh, you got no money and you're living in Africa somewhere. How can that be? You know, that's not really what I'm talking about. I think it's a good day. I think it's a good day when you maybe go forward like I did at a missions conference at age 12 and dedicate your life to full-time Christian service. Only Christian young people can serve Christ. So it makes sense that Christian young people might go forward once in a while and commit to serving Christ. But really, this isn't what I'm talking about here so much. I mean, that's a good thing, and maybe that's how God will work in your heart today, but what I'm talking about here is I'm talking about young people who are just available to be the person God wants them to be. Not so much making a commitment to be a preacher or a missionary, but just, here I am, Lord, and I am yours, and I'm your servant, and I'm available, and help me but we're afraid of the will of God is what happens. Would you agree with me that 
For Joseph, the plan of God for his life was, letter A, unexpected. It was unexpected. This is absolutely unexpected. He didn't, he didn't know that day when he would hear the word that Mary is pregnant. Wait a minute. This one caught me totally by surprise. It was unexpected. Not only was it unexpected, but it was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable. And you know, this is the point where I think a lot of young people bail on God is when living for Christ becomes uncomfortable. When you have to look at somebody and you have to say, this is an unhealthy relationship and we're not going to do this anymore, that's uncomfortable. When you have to say, maybe I'm going to quit this job, that's uncomfortable. Maybe when you're the only person in basic training that doesn't cuss and people are making fun of you and your nickname is Preacher Man. I don't know what's so wrong with that, but (laughs) you're uncomfortable. You're the only one in your school that's not going to some event or a party after the game. Why aren't you coming? That's an uncomfortable moment. Now, granted, clearly committing your life to full-time Christian service and saying, Lord, I will serve you in Africa or wherever can be very uncomfortable. I'm, I'm hoping, even by using this as an illustration, to influence our youth group. Where's Emma Tucker when I need her? Um, to do a reader's theater drama this spring. It's time for us to do Bridge of Blood. And it's a reader's theater dramatic production of five men who were missionaries, all of them married, most of them with little children. The most familiar names of the five are Nate Saint, Jim Elliott. I had Roger Yodarian in my brain and I couldn't get off it. Nate Saint was a pilot and Jim Elliott was kind of the de facto leader of the group. And these five men did what? They, they moved to South America, to Ecuador, South America, to a headquarters, and there they left their wives and their children. That's uncomfortable. Nate Saint shuttled them out in his little yellow, yellow airplane, and they landed on the beach of the Cure River there, and there they sought to reach a Stone Age-like unreached people group. That's uncomfortable. To stay safe at night from wild animals, they built a treehouse up in the tree. That's uncomfortable to live in a treehouse. And then one afternoon, and we have eyewitness accounts, they stood there, all five of them, with their hands up in the air, calling out to these individuals who they had begun to build a relationship with and share meals with and share gifts with, and they called out with their hands in the air, and they filled their bodies, these Stone Age primitive people who knew nothing of Christ, and these men holding up their hands, crying out in the limited language that they knew, let slow motion moving Arrows, bamboo arrows and spears pierced their bodies like pin cushions until they died. And then they tore the fabric off their airplane and they threw the bodies in the river. That's really uncomfortable. But you know, that's a, a really small percentage of people who God calls to do that. Most of us just don't like the discomfort of not looking like the rest of the world, not behaving like the rest of the world. We can't even handle that level of discomfort. Shame on us. You know, our Lord Jesus, by the way, was pretty uncomfortable on the cross, wasn't he? Living out the Father's will. So you would agree with me, wouldn't you, that For Joseph, the plan of God for his life was unexpected. It was uncomfortable, and indeed, it was unusual. It was unusual. 
And let me remind you, young people, that this line cannot be used. It could only be used one time. It would not be repeated. But, but mom, dad, it was of the Holy Spirit. No, it wasn't. Only one time. That's it. It's over. Psalm 84, 10 through 12 are verses that young people should land on. Verse 12 goes something like this. Well, in the middle there somewhere it says, um, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. And the Lord will give grace and glory. And here's verse 12. And no good thing, and no good thing will he withhold from him whose walk is upright. And no good thing will he withhold from him whose walk is upright. You see, what you get down to here is, do you really trust God and believe God enough to live through your discomfort for him to accomplish his will in your life? By the way, young people, I'm talking to a whole room full of adults who don't like to be uncomfortable any more than you. And it applies. So there we are. We have a servant who must be prepared through moral purity, through spiritual integrity, through emotional stability, evidencing in his life. We need to remind ourselves that, the, that we do not need to be afraid of the will of God. The angel says to Joseph, do not fear. And in this case, when the angel says to Joseph, do not be afraid or do not fear, you don't get the idea that like with Mary and with the shepherds, when the angel appeared to them, it was like shocking and it was a fearful thing, like the shepherds falling on their faces in fear when this host of heavenly angels come and it's bright lights. In this case, you don't get the sense in a dream while he's asleep that God begins to speak to Joseph through an angel that he's afraid of the angel. The point of the statement is, Joseph, do not be afraid of the will of God for your life. That's what it is. Thirdly, the word of God must be obeyed. We have a statement to segue out of the will of, the will of God must not be feared The note there is clarity about the will of God in my life begins with a willingness to believe and obey the word of God. Clarity about the will of God in my life begins with a willingness to believe and obey the word of God, which leads us to number three, the word of God must be obeyed. And in Joseph, once again, we have a great model. I think about the limited information that he has, but letter A, what did he do? He had to believe, he had to believe limited information. If the angel didn't tell him much more than what we have recorded in Scripture, Joseph didn't have very much information. Joseph didn't have very much information. But the limited information he had, he believed every word of it. By the way, how much information do we have? We have a lot more information than Joseph had. How are we doing at believing the information that we have? And Joseph had limited information, but he believed it. Secondly, he had to obey specific instruction. He had specific things that God instructed him to do. Name the boy Jesus. Don't come together with your wife until after she has the baby. Do this, do that. He had specific, detailed instruction, and he had to obey that. We have some specific, detailed instruction to obey, don't we? but we're not very good at it. And here comes that line again. But Pastor Van, you don't understand. Okay, so here's what you do. If you've thought that thought today, but Pastor Van, you really don't understand. Please make an appointment and come to my office this week. It's a safe place to be. I only hang dead animals on the wall. No people. 
please make an appointment and come explain to me what I do not understand. Okay? If that thought has gone through your mind, but PV, you just don't understand, then make an appointment, come see me, and please explain to me what I don't understand, okay? And we will look at God's word together. Thirdly, Joseph had to wait to enjoy the blessing of obedience. There was waiting in there, wasn't there? There's a time frame. And Joseph's plans that he thought today by the night are put on hold. By the way, I circled those blanks right there with the words in them. He had to believe, he had to obey, he had to wait. I circled those words, and I think, young people, that is a great three-letter philosophy of the Christian life for you. Number one, believe. Number two, obey. Number three, wait. Believe, obey, wait. Waiting's the hard part. Waiting is the hard part. Often we bail on God's plan too soon, don't we? Because we get tired of waiting. But God is just asleep in my life. God's not speaking to me. I don't know how God's going to work this out. Well, neither do I. So we have to wait, don't we? But when we don't wait, we make bad choices. We often think to ourselves too late, don't we? And look back with hindsight. That's always twenty twenty. If only I had waited on the Lord Believe, obey, wait. Believe, obey, wait. Believe, obey, wait. There it is. Joseph modeled it for us, didn't he? A great formula for successful Christian living. Fourthly, I want you to see in the story that Joseph's not the hero of the story. Joseph's just a servant of the Lord. The hero of the story is the baby that was born. You got that, right? Do you see verse 21? It says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. There it is, the most important line in the whole passage. Our Savior is born and so it's all about focusing on Christ. First of all, if you don't know Christ is your Savior, he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He alone qualified to take your sin upon himself and pay the penalty before a just and holy God who loves you. And set up that plan for Christ to be your Savior. So I call on you today, accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. He's a wonderful Lord Jesus. He's not a scary Lord Jesus. But secondly, for those of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, think about this with Joseph. From that day on, from the day he had the dream, from that day on, think about what this baby did to his life. Everything in Joseph's life was about this baby. He didn't go back to his shop. He ended up, after the baby was born, going to Egypt, come back out of Egypt, doing this, doing that. Everything in his world focused on Jesus. Jesus became the focal point of Joseph's life. You know, that'll preach right there, won't it? Make Jesus the focal point of your life, young people. That's kind of what you have to take away from this message. I need to hold up Christ and look at Christ and make him, make him the undivided attention of my life. Joseph, Joseph's whole world became about taking care of baby Jesus. You let your whole world become living for the resurrected Jesus. Make it the focal point of your life. Joseph's life was all about Jesus. What about yours? Remember, the will of God for your life starts brand new right now. Right now. 
That's what the cross and the blood of Christ can do. And don't come and tell me that God can't use you because God can use you. And in fact, you know what happens is the things that we've allowed into our lives that are not the plan of God, when we finally surrender them and give them up at the foot of the cross, it was never God's will maybe for some of this to happen. But since it did happen, it is most remarkable how God takes that and uses it for his glory. It now becomes part of your story. But we don't mess around so that we can create a story. We focus on Christ. We stop making excuses. We become prepared servants. Sexual purity, moral purity. We become spiritually integrous. We're growing spiritually, emotionally stable. We're not afraid of the will of God. We know the word of God so that we can obey the word of God and Christ becomes our central focus. There you go. Young people, before we pack up the Christmas story, consider Joseph and make him your model, okay? Let's stand together and let's close in prayer. Before I pray, if the Spirit of God's been convicting you, why don't you pray right now and ask God to forgive you of your sin? Some of you need to come to Christ. Some of you need to get right with God through Christ. Some of you need to make some tough decisions about getting your act together. Morally and spiritually, emotionally. Why don't you talk to God right now with whatever it is that little voice inside is telling you? And if you need to talk, I'm going to linger here at the front of the auditorium. We do not have to stack the chairs. Um, Actually, we do. Um, Actually, let me think about that. Forget what I'm talking about here. Come back to me. I'm going to stand in the front of the auditorium, and if that little voice inside is telling you that you need some help, that just... um, First and foremost, you need to talk to God, but secondly, you might need some shepherding in your life. You come and see me, okay? And we'll do all we can to help you. And so, Father, we thank you for Joseph. What a wonderful man he must have been. We have to believe that Mary really loved him and how he sheltered her, took care of her, and took care of the baby Jesus how he provides a model for us as a man who is available for service. Would you help us, Lord, in the areas that we need to work on? Thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. Thank you that we can confess our sin and forsake our sin and be forgiven of our sin in Jesus' name. And may you begin to do a new work in all of us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, here's what we need to do with the chairs. I figured it out even when I was praying. The average guy couldn't do that. (laughs) Chairs on the end and the chairs on the end. Leave the two middle sections up, okay? We have a memorial service here Friday. We have breakfast on Saturday. But stack the two end sections, okay? And I'm going to be down front. I didn't mean to distract us in any way. God bless you as you go. I'll be down front if anybody needs to talk.